We're going to be all over the Bible today as we're talking about drawing people out of shame. Kind of an interesting topic, but it follows with where we've been going in the series called Better Together. We've been talking about neuroscience and how the brain works and how we learn and applying that with what we know of Scripture and of theology. And we've been looking at the fact that there are four catalysts, four agents of transformation. One is joy, and we redefine joy as when we're in the presence of those who are delighted to see us, delighted to be with us, and how that's exactly how God feels about us, which is just mind-blowing for many of us. Next, we talked about uh, another agent of transformation is when we have a, what we call the Hesed Agape community. Hesed is the Old Testament word for grace and loving kindness and mercy and unconditional love and and agape is the New Testament equivalent. And when we have a community that models this and lives this with us, um, we are stronger as we are united with them. Uh, the next week we talked about group identity and how our group identity always reminds us of who we are in Christ. So those moments where we slip, when we fall, uh, they remind us. And the week after that we talked about healthy correction and how Shame is actually not a bad thing. There's toxic shame and there's healthy shame. Toxic shame is condemning and it leaves us kind of left in our, in our sin and in our dysfunction without a way out. Healthy shame is coming alongside of others, identifying with them in their weakness because we all have faults, we all have weaknesses, and reminding them, the group identity of who we are in Christ. Uh, what we looked at in 1 Peter chapter 2. We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. We have been called to proclaim the excellencies of, of the one who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so when we slip and when we uh, go through periods of, of sin, coming alongside of each other and saying, hey, this is, this is not your true identity. This is not who you are. Join me as we journey back uh, into fellowship with the Father and uh, into his healing presence. And so that's what we've been talking about. Then last week we talked about narcissism. And I shared with you that I had never considered and really understood that at, at the base, at the foundation of, of narcissistic personalities is what we call the shame disease. That narcissism is the inability to process, metabolize, if you will, shame in a relational way. And that's why narcissists choose to be overachievers, performers. Uh, they seek after positions and titles because that's the way that they try and overcome this need to feel special because they're not able to do that in a relational way. And so I thought that it would make sense today to talk about what does it mean for us as the people of God, as children of God, to draw people out of shame. And understand when I say that, I'm not saying that we as the ones who have it all together, who are righteous and perfect, go and help sinners. No, we are all sinners saved by God's grace. What does it mean for us in humility and vulnerability to come alongside those who are hurting and draw them out? So it's unfortunate and tragic, in my opinion, that when we sin, often our resulting behavior after we sin can be more damaging and more destructive than the initial act that precipitated our fall. We sin, we blow it, but even sometimes greater than the sin is that period of isolation 
that period of alienation, that period of shame where we allow Satan to just have his way in our life and just twist us and warp us and contort us in horrible ways. And, and frequently the catalyst, the reason for our downward spiral is shame. We're caught in shame. We don't know how to deal with it. We don't, we've never had someone model for us what it means to deal with shame in a healthy, functional, biblical way. Examples of those trapped in shame range from the homeless on our streets to those who have a home but choose to sequester in isolation at home because they don't want to risk being exposed, being exposed from addictions, from secret sins, guilty pleasures. Maybe it's crippling anxiety or depression or grief, and they just don't know how to get healthy again, to be functional. Shame ranges from those who have confessed and named their demons to those who perhaps hide behind masks, shields of privacy, and suffer silently because they think if people knew what was going on, they wouldn't accept me, they wouldn't love me, they would never understand. And so they just keep it inside, and it it does its destruction. But one thing is universal. One commonality distinguishes them all. Despite the nature of their shame, despite the way that it might manifest itself in their life, You'll seldom, if ever, find them at church because that's the last place they want to be. And you have to ask, why? Why? If the church is a hospital for those who are sick, if it's an extended family and community for the alienated, then why? And I would argue it's because the perception, the perception is that the church is a showcase for the righteous. It's a showcase for the righteous. It's a place where the healthy, the functional, the successful, the beautiful, and the whole come to parade their perfection. Put on our best clothes, put on a show, act like everything's great, like the world just couldn't be better, business couldn't be better, our finances couldn't be better, our relationships, our marriages, our children, all of our pursuits. It's just swimmingly great, you know? And we don't want to take the time to be real with people. We, want, we don't want to take the time to be authentic or transparent because we know if we even start down that road, we're going to fall apart. We're either going to just crumble in tears or the anxiety over starting to uncover what's really going on is just overwhelming. It's incapacitating. And friends, we all know that this is not the picture of the church that Jesus described in the Gospels. Jesus came, I came not for the healthy, but for the sick. It's not the healthy who need a physician. And I came to seek and save those who are lost. So so what do we do? I want to begin to address this question today by taking a deep dive in the Old Testament of all places and to look at Israel's history. And for the beginning, at least here, rather than thumbing through your Bibles and racing, just let me summarize some things and recount some things so we can all be on the same page. During Israel's period of wilderness wandering, what was done outside of the camp of Israel was as important to God as what was done inside of the camp. And 
This might seem like a simple distinction, but it becomes a profound point of significance in helping us to understand a subtle nuance in Jesus' life and ministry. As part of God's conditional covenant, the Mosaic covenant, if you do this, I will do that, God placed emphasis on activities done outside of the camp. For example, the burning of the sacrifice sin offering was to take place outside of the camp, Exodus 29. Even the ashes of the burnt offering were to be taken to a clean place outside of the camp, Leviticus 6. When Nadab and Abihu were killed by God for violating his sacrificial laws, their relatives were instructed to take their ashes outside of the camp, Leviticus 10. If someone had leprosy, he was to dwell outside of the camp, Leviticus 13. If a person was stoned to death, that was to happen outside of the camp, Numbers 15. Outside the camp became kind of synonymous as the place of the unclean. That's where the unclean hung out. As the Israelites moved on from wilderness wandering and started developing cities, outside of the camp became equivalent to outside the city gates. And that's an important nuance for us to realize Joshua chapter 20, verses 1 to 4 is an example of this. The Lord said to Joshua, Now tell the Israelites to designate the cities of refuge as I instructed Moses. Anyone who kills another person accidentally and unintentionally can run to one of these cities. They will be places of refuge from relatives seeking revenge for the person who was killed. Upon reaching one of these cities, the one who caused the death will appear before the elders at the city gate and present his case. They must allow him to enter the city and give him a place to live among them. Another example of this is Luke chapter 7. Now as Jesus was approaching the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother. Why? Because you don't bury dead people within the city. You carry them outside the gates. The only son of his mother, she was a widow, and a sizable crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, do not weep. And he came up and touched the coffin, which was unheard of, because that would have made him ceremonially unclean. But the difference with Jesus is everything he touches becomes clean, and it doesn't affect him at all. And the bearers came to a halt. The bearers of the coffin came to a halt. And Jesus said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. And fear gripped them all. And they began glorifying God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. And God has visited his people. So that's the context that I want to set for you. Now, you can either turn here or I want to read for you a very well-known, familiar passage in Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19. It's the story of Lazarus and the rich man. And you've heard this probably many times. And it's interesting how Lazarus, the poor man, the beggar at the gate, were given his name, but the rich man is anonymous. It's kind of like God is revaluing, reordering the worth and saying what the world deems as valuable is nothing to me. 
This is what I value. But listen to this parable and this story through new eyes. Luke 16, verse 19, Jesus said, There was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen and who lived each day in luxury. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. As Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. I'm not going to go through the rest of the parable. I just want to, I want to reorder this story in your mind. Traditionally, we think, I'm, I'm driving home to my home in Beverly Hills, and there's this beggar outside of my gate that's annoying. Every day I come home, I'm confronted by this sight and by this, this appeal, this petition of need. Or I'm driving home to my gated neighborhood, and as I enter the code or whatever it is to get in, there's the guy always there. No, that's not the picture. This guy is outside of the city gates, but Jesus is saying, it's your city, it's your town. Like, this is one of yours. So it's not his home, but it's, it's his town, his city. That's the picture here that's being emphasized. The gate does not mean the gate to his house. So I want to jump off of that and talk about and explore in some practical ways what it means, in my opinion, through Scripture to draw people out of shame. And let me, let me suggest that the first thing, if you're taking notes on the outline, is to take ownership. Drawing people out of shame begins by taking ownership. This person in need is one of ours. He may not live in your neighborhood, in your geographical area, but if they are in our city and in our town, if they are a child created in the image of God, they are one of us. They are one of ours. And drawing people out of shame is not a project, it's a calling. Let me reemphasize that. It is not a project, it is not a task, it's not even a ministry, it is a calling. And 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 20 speaks of that calling. Anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person, is a new creation. The old life is gone, behold, a new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God who has brought us back to himself through Christ. And he has given us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. Friends, the, the essence of drawing people out of shame is to take ownership and to continually invite people to come back to God. Invite people to come back to dinner, come back to the supper, come back to fellowship. But like the prodigal son, the father is waiting with open arms. There's no shame, there's no condemnation, there's no scolding. There, there's reunification, there's restoration, there's healing. Neighbor and gate is not about geography. And we see that so vividly in the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, where the, the question that needs to be asked there is not who is my neighbor, but rather what does it mean for me to be a neighbor? And we learn that a neighbor is not somebody who lives next door to me or on my block. A neighbor is anybody that I run into, anyone who crosses my path in my day-to-day -day living. That is my neighbor, anyone in need. That is who the Lord is challenging me and calling me to help fulfill that need.
We see an example of this in Acts chapter 3, verse 2. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. So this guy wasn't outside the city gates, but he didn't really have control over where he went because they carried him and took him places. But thought, let's send him outside of the temple. There's a lot of people that go in there. As they're going to try and make things right with God, perhaps they will reach out to this guy and help him. So the question today is, what, what are our city gates today? What are our temples today? Target, Black Angus, Barnes & Noble. Think about the shopping centers where you go, and there are people with signs. There are, those, those are our gates, friends. Those are our people. And, and as I'm going to say, I'm not just, those caught in shame, please don't hear me say, are just homeless people and people on the streets. No, it's much bigger than that. It's it's us as well. But this is part of it. And these are strangers that we don't identify with because we don't know them. They're, they're not on our block. But, but it starts with us taking ownership. Secondly, I would say that drawing people out of shame means to go beyond, to go outside of. And I'll, I'll, I'll articulate that and explain that. But turn to Hebrews 13 if you're if you know where that is, if not, just listen. Hebrews is toward the end of the New Testament, right before James, chapter 13, looking at verses 11 to 14. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. It's interesting how this comparison is made. Hebrews 13, 11. Under the old system, the old Mosaic covenant, the, the law, under the old system, the high priest brought the blood of animals into the holy place as a sacrifice for sin. And the bodies of the animals were burned outside the camp. So also, in the same way, Jesus suffered and died outside of the city gates to make his people holy by means of his own blood. Verse 13. <clears throat> so let us go out to him outside of the camp and bear the disgrace that he bore. For this world is not our permanent home, but we are looking forward to a home yet to come. What does it mean to go outside of, to go outside and meet Jesus and join Jesus? That phrase, let us go out, literally in the Greek means to go out of an assembly, to forsake it, which is mind-blowing because the author of Hebrews had just said in Hebrews 10.25, let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the habit of some, but let us do that all the more, especially as the day draws near. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. But here we're told that the balance is not just being a holy huddle and always going inside of the protection of the box and the bubble, but getting outside of the walls and finding Jesus in other places as well. Because Jesus does not dwell here. The only time Jesus is here is when we're here. Because he does not dwell in temples made by human hands. He dwells in our hearts now through faith and through the cross. And so what does it mean to go out and to find him? 
And I want to read you Exodus 33 as, as context for this. Exodus 33, 7 through 11, if you're taking notes. And all of this is on your study guide if you're in a small group or if you want to do individual study to take the sermon further. It's in there. And if you're not on that email list yet, uh, talk to somebody who probably is and let me know and I'll get you on it. But Exodus 33, 7. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside of the camp a good distance from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And it came about that whenever Moses went out to the tent, that all the people would arise and stand, each at the entrance of his own tent, and they would gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. Whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud, the Lord's presence, would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, and all the people would arise and worship each at the entrance of his tent, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks with his friend. So the image of going out to meet him outside of the camp is, it started with Moses erecting the tabernacle, which was then a tent that they set up wherever they would go. And the people would go, Moses would go outside of the camp to meet with the Lord, and as people wanted to meet with God, they would come. And so this is what it means to go outside of and meet the Lord. And all of this to say that it's counterintuitive to many of us that we would leave sacred places, we would leave the church and go out into a sinful community in order to find God. But he's out there, and he's working, and he's doing things, and he's inviting us to join him. And he's inviting us to join him in reaching people caught and trapped in shame and drawing them back, begging them, pleading them, come, come back to God. His arms are open. He awaits you. Jesus, in order to sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside of the city gates. Matthew 27 tells us that after Jesus' unjust trial, that he was led away to Golgotha, the place of the skull, which was outside of the city gates, and there he gave his life as a ransom for us. He was taken outside of the city to bear reproach and shame, to be treated as an unclean criminal, unqualified to remain in the city. Jesus died the death of a criminal outside of the city so that you and I might be qualified through his blood to have righteousness, to have eternal life, and to be part of his kingdom. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God through him. God made him who was perfectly righteous and qualified to be unqualified and to bear shame that you and I might not have to, but that you and I might be qualified not only to associate in public, but also to stand before his throne one day spotless because we're dressed in his righteousness and not in our own. So we're to follow him, to go to him outside the camp bearing his reproach and shame, knowing that our home, the lasting city that we are looking for, is ahead of us. We're seeking the permanent one to come, not this temporary earthly dwelling. Now, for first century Jews who, who read these words written here in Hebrews, there was another meaning to this. 
and the profound meaning for them was that to go outside meant to go outside of Judaism, to go outside of the conventionality and the laws and the, the regulations that Judaism had imposed. And part of this is that the gospel was going to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews, that God was going to do new things that might like rub them in the wrong way and strike them as being very wrong, but they were right. God was putting the same truth in new wineskins. For them to remain within the camp of Judaism would have meant for them to be separated from the Lord and what he was doing. And there's a price to pay, sharing the rejection that Jesus experienced, bearing the disgrace that he bore. In Hebrews eleven twenty six, Moses is said to have accepted disgrace for the sake of Christ. He did things that caused him disgrace for the sake of Christ. And we see that to align ourselves with Christ is to be subject to, to scorn and to shame and to, repro- to reproach. So what does it mean for us to seek our own fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who have wandered off? Well, I think Jesus addresses that in the parable of the the shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep and goes after the one. That's pretty clear, Jesus' priority. I got 99 sheep that are safe and okay, and there's other shepherds here that can, and I'm going to go out and look for the one that's in trouble and bring them back. That's what Jesus models for us. It's interesting to me that Jesus never, there's never any record in Scripture for us of Jesus seeking out lost sheep in synagogues or in the temple. He pursued them in homes, at weddings, at funerals, over meals, at places of business, in the countryside, by the sea. And we've all said how much we love watching The Chosen because we see that lived out so beautifully in front of us that Jesus was not sitting day by day, 24-7 in the temple and in the synagogues teaching. He was out in the community, incarnational, going to where people lived and meeting them at their place of need and living amongst them and sharing light and truth. That's the beauty of it. I love John chapter 21. What a beautiful picture Jesus gives us of drawing Peter out of shame. We've talked about this passage so many times and I'm not gonna get into it in depth, but... It's interesting that the text says that this was the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples. Pretty interesting in terms of the fact that Jesus, Peter denied Jesus three times. There's a campfire that Jesus has set up to cook fish. The last campfire, Peter was before the Lord denying him. And so the image of a campfire. And then Three times Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Which is not shaming him, but recommissioning him and drawing him back. You're not a fisherman. What are you doing out here? I commissioned you to fish for people. That's where it's at. Seriously, you're going back to recreational fishing? Like, come on. And, and I, I am convinced of it. Someday when we get to heaven, we're going to find out as, as Jesus reinstituted Peter, as he recommissioned him, and as Peter accepted the love and the embrace and the grace of his Lord, that somewhere in the distance a rooster crowed. Because the text tells us that Jesus came to them as dawn was breaking. I, I, I wonder how many times between Thursday night when Peter denied his Lord and Sunday morning when Jesus rose from the grave, how many times Peter heard a rooster crow in a rural ag- agricultural society? Probably a lot. And every time that rooster crowed, it pierced his heart. 
it reminded him of his denial and his shame. But on this morning, as Jesus cooked fish for them, as Jesus recommissioned him, perhaps speculation, not important, but as that rooster crowed, forever it ceased to be a symbol of shame. But it signified to Peter perpetual dawn. Because of the, re- the resurrection, it is perpetual morning. It's perpetually a new day. All of God's mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Like it's a do-over. It's a second chance. I'm, I'm on board again because God was drawing him out of shame. Well, there's a lady named Heather Davis Nelson. She wrote a book called Unashamed, Healing Our Brokenness and Finding Freedom from Shame. She makes a very interesting point. She says, shame has two conflicting instincts, either the instinct to isolate and hide or the instinct to seek out a community in which to be transparent. And guess which one we do? We isolate and hide because it's a lot easier. It's really hard to seek out a community to be transparent. And that is precisely why we need to seek people out and offer them that opportunity and go to them where they are. We're doing for people what they often cannot do for themselves. In 2018, comedian Pete Davidson appeared on the weekend update segment of Saturday Night Live, SNL. Davidson made a crude joke about a former Navy SEAL turned congressman elect, Dan Crenshaw. Crenshaw had lost an eye in the line of duty and became the butt of Davidson's vulgar joke. The combination of mocking Crenshaw's disability, especially a disability that came from serving his country at war, along with a clear disapproval of his political beliefs, led to a burst of public outrage. While Davidson was making the joke, it became clear many found it in poor taste, and the vitriol aimed at the young comedian would ultimately lead him down a spiral of depression and self-loathing. Davidson then took his anguish public by posting on Instagram, I really don't want to be on this earth anymore. I'm doing my best to stay here but I actually don't know how much longer I can last. All I've ever tried to do is help people. Just remember I told you so. When Crenshaw heard about Davidson's condition, he didn't do what many do when embroiled in public conflict. Instead, he decided to extend an olive branch, befriending the comedian and even offering words of life. Davidson recounts that Crenshaw reached out and comforted him with these words. God put you here for a reason. It's your job to find out what that purpose is. And that's the way that you should live. The person who writes this article says, humor is often a coping mechanism to deal with the pain that life throws at us. But in the midst of the deep, unsettling pain of being publicly shamed, what Davidson needed was not a good joke, but forgiveness. In some ways, it's ironic that a man trained to kill and destroy his enemies could be so moved by compassion that he reached out to someone who publicly mocked him and deeply held in his deeply held political beliefs. But that's the beauty of the gospel. It enables us, it empowers us to look beyond our own reputation, our own pride, and to care for others. And that's what it means to reach out to people in shame. Author and pastor Gordon MacDonald recalled his, the loyal love and the, uh, the crucial counsel given to him 
in a crisis at the passing. Uh, one of his lifelong mentors passed away, and he remembers this about him, the counsel and the love that he showed. He said, it was there when many years later my life fell apart because of a moral failure for which I was totally responsible. In my worst moment of shame and humiliation, he came and lived in our home for a week and helped me to do a searing examination of my life. My wife and I will always remember his words. You are both momentarily in great darkness, but you have a choice to make. You can do as many do and deny this terrible pain, blame it on others, or run away from it, or you can embrace this pain together and let it do its purifying work. As you hear the things God whispers in your hearts during the process, if you choose the latter, I expect you will have adventures, an adventurous future modeling what true repentance and grace is all about. Talk about healthy correction. Talk about group identity, a loved friend, a mentor who came alongside of Gordon McDonald at his worst and most shameful point of life and said, this isn't you. God has created you for so much more, and I'm going to help you go back. And if you take this journey, if you do the right thing, this is going to be a story that a lot of people can find healing and restoration through because that's what God is all about. The third and last thing, drawing people out of shame, I believe, means bearing and carrying the shame with them, helping people with disappointment, with shame, with correction. And why? Because we're seeking, we're striving after, we're setting our desire upon the city yet to come. And that's the exact motivation that Hebrews 12 gives of Jesus. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, and especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus the champion who initiates and perfects our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and now has been seated again in the place of honor beside God's throne. How did Jesus deal with shame? By looking at the future glory and reward of reunification with his Father and fellowship with the Father. And Jesus models for us what it means to deal with shame now. You and I, by looking to our future glory and reward, that helps us bear shame right now in our present reality. As we look at what awaits us, at the glory and the reward of Jesus and being with him forever, that helps us process shame now. So how do we bear and carry shame of fellow Christians? Again, by going to them. By going to them. That's where it starts. Listening to their story. By listening to someone's story, you are giving them a chance to go public, to get the secret out, so that the lies cannot be a shameful thing to them anymore, but they're, they're getting it out, they're, they're confessing the truth. By praying to God for healing and restoration, by confessing our own sin, our own weaknesses, our own vulnerability, saying, you're not the only one here, I've got stuff that I'm processing right now, and I'm going to join you in this. James 5, 14 to 15, is anyone among you sick? You should call for the elders of the church and make an appointment. No. You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray for you, 
The, the, the inference here is that you're racked up in bed. You can't even get out of bed. The elders are coming to you. You're not making an appointment and going to church. They're coming to you. They're going outside the walls of the church to you and anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick and the Lord will make you well. And if you have committed any sins, you will be forgiven. What's being said there, that not all sickness is the result of sin, which some people teach, not the truth. But the point here is the elders come. For those on the outside, for those who aren't Christians, for those in our community, for strangers, how do we draw them out of shame? Let me suggest it starts by taking the time to be with them, not offering them money or you know things that get them out of our hair and we can get on with our business, but take the time to hear their story. Hear their story. Give them the dignity of, of letting them tell you their story. Some people you're immediately going to realize this person is out. They're, they're just gone. Like this is bigger than what I can solve. They need to, to go to an institution to be tested for drugs or whatever. And I get that. But there's a lot of people that are just hurting. They, they need somebody to hear their story. You've all heard my story about the homeless guy here in Ventura that I ignored for years until one day my little daughters, when I came out of ignoring him outside of Baskin Robbins for the umpteenth time because some woman in Ventura said he comes from a rich family, has everything he needs to ignore him. And I did that. I followed that advice until I got in the car and my little daughter, Sammy, said, Dad, what's that guy's name? And then secondly, Dad, does that man know Jesus? You know? Next time I sought him out, you guys know the story. His name is Bob. God has a sense of humor. And no, Bob is not all there. There's moments where he's very lucid and we have great conversations. There's other moments where, see, see all this? I, I made that. I built that. Oh, that's cool, Bob. That's awesome. You know, he's just gone. But anyways, it starts by hearing their story. Secondly, work to have a consistent connection to establish credibility. Reaching people where they're at is not a once and done. It is a repeated effort in trying to get to know somebody and establishing a relationship. Change results from relationship. Share their shame and vulnerability. Shared shame is not as deadly. Remind people of who they are. They are created in the image of God. They are created with worth and dignity, no matter what their present situation might say about them. And then finally, lead people to Jesus. Lead them physically and spiritually back to Jesus. We are not the saviors. We are not the messiahs. We are pointing people to Jesus, not to ourselves, not to our church, not to a program. Lead them to Jesus. I'm going to wrap this up. It's easy for us to live inside of the camp, inside of the gate, seldom venturing beyond what is convenient and what is comfortable. But God has called us out. He has called us out. His incarnation by taking on human flesh. His atonement by dying on the cross for our sins. His resurrection by rising from the dead on the third day and proclaiming victory over the grave. And his ascension, returning in glory to be with the Father. Are the way that he provided forgiveness for our sins. But it's also the way that he lifted our shame. It's the way that he lifted our shame. Many have said that Jesus is the shame breaker. And I want to leave you with this verse. It's a verse that I just found. It's beautiful. It's in Micah. The prophet Micah, chapter 2, 12 and 13. Someday, O Israel, I will gather you. I will gather the remnant of Israel who are left. 
which includes us as a church because we've been grafted in by faith and by grace. I will bring you together again like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. Yes, your land will be again filled with noisy crowds. Your leader, get this, some translations say the breaker. Jesus is called the breaker, will break out and lead you out of exile, out through the gates, back to your own land. Your king will lead you and the Lord himself will guide you. I'm going to invite the team back up right now as we prepare for communion. I I imagine there are very many of us here today who are broken. And we're all dressed up and we look good on the outside, but many of us are hurting deeply. And a lot of us here, it's because of shame. It's because some of you here today have never started a personal relationship with God through Jesus and accepted his free gift of salvation that he secured on the cross. And that's where freedom from shame begins. But there's very many of you that, have, that have, have a relationship with the Lord and you've prayed that prayer and you've invited God in, but you are still living in sin as we all do. And every time we fall back, we're filled with shame because we realize that's not who I am. That's not who I want to be. And though the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. But friends, that's why Jesus came. He is the breaker of, of barriers and of bondage, and of shame. And that's what this table represents, that he died in our place to secure our salvation and our righteousness and our forgiveness. Lord God, as we partake of this table today, I ask that you would meet us right where we're at. You are the God, the God of the incarnation, the God who comes to us, who takes on human flesh, and who does what we can't do. And through the bread and through the juice today, would you remind us of your sacrifice? Would you remind us that you forever stand ready to welcome with open arms anyone who wants to identify with you? Meet us now as we seek you, Lord God. Amen.